You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. If you're able to remain standing, turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. As you're, as you're turning there, I just, I wasn't planning on doing this. I just want to publicly honor uh, Pastor Hans. He has modeled for us as a church and as us as an elder team uh, what it means to lament, uh, what it means um, to experience um, the lows of life, the tragedies of life, hearing of Ashley's passing is an appropriate time for God's people to lament. That doesn't mean we're without hope, as you heard in his prayer. But so many of us, we sort of have this idea that weakness is, showing weakness is, is sort of um, innately wrong. Um, but uh, we have a different model um, in the scriptures. Um, weakness, as Pallison says, is that unusual door into the strength of God. I hope we're learning that as a community. And I just want to thank again, Pastor Hans, for modeling that for us over and over and over again. Um, With that said, Matthew 12, um, verses 22 to 37 is our text this morning. Jesus, uh, Matthew is following the life and ministry of Jesus. Then a demon-oppressed man was blind and mute, who was blind and mute, was brought to him, And he, Jesus, healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or verse 29, how can some, someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Verse 33, either make the tree good and its fruits good or make the tree bad and its fruits bad for the tree is known by its fruits. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people give it account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. 
Well, you picked an interesting day to visit Roots Community Church if this is your first Sunday. We are continuing in the Gospel of Matthew this morning and we come to yet another consequential, pivotal moment in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Last week we heard from Jesus as he was responding to his critics regarding the Sabbath, Sabbath law keeping. Uh, We heard from him with remarkable authority. We heard him declare that he was, in fact, the Lord of the Sabbath. To the surprise of his critics, Jesus says, I am the Lord of rest. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. That it is indeed fitting for all who are weary and heavy laden to find rest in him. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. And so we saw Jesus both in the grain fields and then in the synagogues correct and rebuke those who were abusing their authority. Remember the Pharisees had successfully turned a merciful command from God to rest from labor and to marvel at God's work. They had successfully turned a command for rest into an occasion for scrupulosity and burden and law keeping. And as we learned last week, nothing makes Christ more angry, more upset, more animated than when those people, those Pharisees, those in religious authority stand in the way of someone who is trying to find rest in God. Well, after a clear defeat in the grain fields and in the synagogue, the Pharisees regroup. All right, guys, pull it back together. We've got we to re- regroup and come up with something else to throw a wrench in this ministry of Christ. And so they regroup and they devise a new criticism in hopes to sow doubt into the ministry of Jesus. And that is our text this morning. It is a new criticism to sow doubt and, and disconfidence into the ministry of of Christ. And this is where we pick up this morning. So if you're a note taker, this is point one, first movement in the text. I've entitled it, A House Divided. Pick up in verse 22 again. Then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, was brought to Jesus. And he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. The direct result of Jesus healing this demon-oppressed man was that now he could see and he could hear. It was so obvious, so demonstrable that the crowd, when they saw the miracle, they wondered to themselves, can this be the son of David? Could this be that the kingdom of God has come in the person and work of Jesus from Nazareth? Is the Messiah among us? And noticing the sway of the crowd, the murmurs of the crowd, the Pharisees jump into action. They see the crowd sympathizing with the ministry of Christ. And now the Pharisees want to pull them away from that sympathy. 
and unable to deny his ability to heal and cast out demons, the only way to persuade people away from Christ is to question the source of his power and authority. They cannot deny that this man who was blind and deaf is now seeing and hearing. We can't deny that. So we must sow doubt into where he gets his authority, where he gets his power. Jesus must be under the influence, they say, of Beelzebul. Literally, that is the the prince of Baal. He shows up in 2 Kings and other places. It's a pagan god considered to be the prince of demons, even Satan himself. No, the Pharisees respond, Jesus is not the son of David, and the kingdom of God is not come with him. No, Jesus of Nazareth comes on the authority of the prince of demons, on the authority of Satan himself. I love how Matthew describes what happens next. Seamlessly, look at verse 25. Knowing their thoughts. (laughs) Knowing their thoughts. Jesus, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan, verse 26, casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. First, Jesus lays out a principle for all of us, for his immediate audience then, and of course for us now, an immediate principle that is very easy to understand. If Satan casts out Satan, his kingdom is divided. He's fighting against himself. And every kingdom that is fighting against itself, having a civil war, cannot stand. Jesus goes on to say, this is true of a nation. This is true of a city. This is even true of a home. A home divided, a house divided cannot stand. A quick parenthesis on this point. I think this principle that Christ is laying out, as simple as it is, as clear as it is, maybe for us as Americans would have been harder to relate to maybe 10 or 15 years ago in our country. Though we would recognize that as true, a kingdom divided cannot stand, 10 to 15 years ago, it would have been harder to relate to. But as we are sitting here now in our country, in 2023, all of us have felt the birth pains of division in our country. And we're starting to realize really the reality of what it means to be a kingdom divided. I'm asking myself, I don't know if you are too, asking, this is not what the sermon's about, I'm gonna close the parentheses in 30 seconds, but I'm asking myself questions that I never thought I would ask in America. How much longer can we withstand this amount of division? How much longer can we go at each other without another civil war? And so here, Jesus is saying a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand, it cannot endure. Instead, it is laid waste. A house divided will fall. And so again, Jesus uses this universally accepted principle to reveal the the plain fallacy of the Pharisees' criticism. And next he says in verse 27, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. 
Now, there were Jewish exorcists in the first century, some of whom were known to be effective in casting out demons. So Jesus is saying, I'm not the only one who casts out demons here in Palestine. Your own sons, your own kinsmen are casting out demons. Are you questioning their authority as they cast out demons? If so, I'll let them be your judge and not me. So Jesus responds to the attack of the Pharisees by giving them a common sense argument. A kingdom divided can't stand. Satan, divide, Satan casting out Satan doesn't make sense at all. But as is Jesus' custom, he gives them more than what they were asking for. Jesus uses the controversy to give them more than what they bargained for. And so Jesus uses their attack. He's like a jujitsu guy. I'm learning about jujitsu. I'm not going to do jujitsu, but I'm learning that you take the attack, and, and so don't invite me onto the mats, you guys. Um, they take the move, and then they use it to their advantage. So Jesus is a rhetorical jujitsu guy, theological jujitsu guy. He takes their argument, and then he uses it, twists it in an, in, a, in an opportunity now so that Jesus is now on the offensive. He's no longer on the defensive. And Jesus uses their attack as an opportunity to broaden his teaching now about the kingdom of God. And listen, Jesus in the next section teaches us about the peril, warns us about the peril of those who would try to keep others from resting in Jesus. So this leads us to point two. Christ has bound the strong man. Look at verse 28 to begin. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, the crowd was right. Their instincts about the person of Christ was right. When they said, could this be the son of David? It is not by the power of Satan, but by the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus casts out demons. Therefore, the kingly rule and reign of Jesus has come upon you. Your wait for Messiah, Jesus is saying, is over. But Jesus goes on in verse 29. He says, or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man then indeed he may plunder his house. Now, of course, Satan is the strong man here in Jesus' illustration. Satan is the strong man, and Christ has come, and he binds the strong man, and then he enters and plunders the strong man's house. I find verse 29, I don't know about you, I find verse 29 both sobering and comforting at the same time. It's sobering, first, because Christ acknowledges the real presence of Satan in the world, and he calls him strong. He acknowledges the real presence. By the way, he just cast out demons from somebody who was oppressed by demons, and he acknowledges the real presence of Satan in the world. I don't know about you, but that is a sobering reality. One commentator noted that it perplexed him why so many folks have a difficult time acknowledging the real presence of Satan and demons in the world. 
He said it perplexed him because our culture seems to be obsessed, even in this present moment, with wizards and realms and movies about witchcraft and so forth. We seem to swim in this cult, these cultural waters all of the time. So why is it so difficult to grasp the reality of evil in a demonic realm bent on destruction? I can't tell you how many times I have gotten into conversations that included the most bizarre conspiracy theories about the Illuminati and lizard people who are hurting children and how the earth is not round. And yet when Christians bring up the reality of Satan, they're like, oh, that's really weird. That's really bizarre. You guys are you guys are wacko. No, I don't think we're nuts. The Bible teaches in Christ himself confirms the real presence of Satan in the world. It is a sobering reality. And he is a strong man. But there is an encouraging reality to this because in the illustration Jesus is the one who binds the strong man. So there is one stronger So we don't live in fear, we live in victory. Christ comes and he binds the strong man as Frederick Bruner writes, quote, Satan is a prisoner of war. I love that. He he is a prisoner of war. Satan tried to cause Christ to fall in the wilderness temptation like he caused Adam and Eve to fall in the garden, but Christ was victorious. Christ did not succumb to the temptations. Satan failed. Satan was behind the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. Satan was behind the plot to murder Christ in the heart of the Pharisees. Satan was behind the Roman execution of Jesus on the cross. But to Satan's peril, all of that was the definite plan of God to atone for God's people. So yes, Satan is a real threat and he is, his presence is truly felt in the world today, but he is a prisoner of war. He is a defeated enemy. Christ has bound the strong man. And Christ is plundering his goods. That's cool. He's not just binding up the strong man. He's taking back everything that he took from you. All of the years that the locusts have eaten, all of the sleepless nights of anxiety and fear, all of the past regrets and failure, all of those things that come back and haunt you today, all of that joy that has been taken from you, Jesus is plundering it away from Satan. That is great news for the people of God today. I found it very encouraging as I was sitting in my study this week to say, Satan is a failure. He is a failure. That's one of the chief fears of us, of human beings, is failing. Failing my family, failing at my job, failing at this or that. Failure is always this chief fear. And it's not surprising that it is one of our chief fears because Satan himself is a failure. And the more people he can get to feel like failures, he feels like he's successful in some way. I'm not going to make you do it now, but sometime in your your prayer time this week, or just, just say it out loud. Satan is a failure. Don't talk to him. 
That's, don't, you don't need to talk to him. Just talk about him. <laughs> You're a failure. He's a failure. And Christ is a victor. Christ is the victor. Everything that Satan tried to twist and distort for his own glory, Christ turned for our good and for God's glory. And so he has bound the strong man and he is plundering his goods. Finally, in our section this morning, it ends, and you've read it with us already, it ends, our section does, with a great warning. We'll spend some time here for those who would reject the work of the Holy Spirit in the ministry of Christ. There is a great warning for all who would reject Christ and the work of the Spirit through him. And there is on the heels of that warning another great warning for those who would stand in the way for someone else that is trying to find rest in Jesus. And so we end our time with two great warnings. Look at verse 30 to begin. Verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. First, Jesus issues a clear warning to those who would reject the work of the Holy Spirit in the ministry of Christ. He says in no uncertain terms that there is no neutrality when it comes to Christ. There's no Switzerland in Christian theology. There is no neutrality. You are either with Christ or you are against Christ. Listen, if your life were to end today and you are not a disciple of Jesus Christ, there is no mercy for your indecision. That's what Jesus is saying. If you're not with me, then you are against me. There is no mercy for your indecision. Whether you knew it or not, you sided and partnered with the work of Satan and not the work of Christ, not the work of the Spirit. Even your indifference to Jesus is a posture against him. There is no neutrality when it comes to Christ. That is the teaching of the New Testament. That is the teaching of Christ himself. Whoever is not with me is against me. Next, Jesus says something that to this day reverberates in the conscience of every living soul that is sensitive to the word of God. Every soul sensitive to the word of God hears this and feels it reverberating in their conscience. Verse 31, therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Jesus goes on in verse 32, and whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. These are some of the most sobering words in all of the, the Bible. But before we remark on the unforgivable sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, before we remark on that, it is notable that Jesus says that every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. It's understandable that we focus on the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the one thing that God says is unforgivable. We often pass over the fact that Jesus said every other sin will be forgiven. 
So Jesus Christ himself, if you're sitting here wondering if what you have done, you're sitting here just honest with yourself and you're wondering, is what I've done or what I am currently doing, can that ever be forgiven by God? Will that ever be forgiven? From Christ's own mouth, not from a mediator, not from a preacher, not from another writer, Jesus Christ himself says yes, yes to that answer. Whatever sin is floating around in your head and your heart, thinking if I have done these things, can I be forgiven? Jesus Christ himself says yes. Well, what about murder? Yes. What about serial murder? Yes. What about adultery? Yes. What about serial adultery? Yes. What about my drunkenness? Will that ever be forgiven or could that ever be forgiven? Yes. What about theft? Absolutely. Yes. What about a lying tongue? Yes. What about 60 years of passivity and laziness? Yes. What about child molestation? Could that be forgiven? Yes. What about obsession with money and success? What about the love of money? Could I ever be forgiven of that? Yes. What about legalism? Yes. Pride? Yes. Envy? Yes. Sinful anger? Yes. You fill in the blank. Whatever deep secret you have never shared with anyone ever, could that ever, if that was ever brought on Jesus' table, would he ever have the audacity to wipe that away with his own blood? Yes. All forgivable through the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. And beloved, I am convinced that it will take us all of eternity to comprehend that kind of grace and mercy. It will take exactly eternity for us to wrap our minds and hearts around that kind of mercy. The only sin which will not be forgiven, Jesus says, is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. What is blasphemy against the Spirit? Well, in this immediate context, blasphemy against the Spirit is attributing the work of the Holy Spirit through Jesus to the work of Satan. This is what the Pharisees were in danger of doing, attributing the authentic work of the Holy Spirit in causing this man to see and hear and saying that is not the work of the Spirit of God, that is the work of Satan. And Jesus says, if you settle into that fact or that reality, that becomes your truth that is unforgivable. Broadening it out a bit, blasphemy against the Spirit is denying the Holy Spirit's work in the ministry of Jesus and therefore a full rejection of his life and ministry. Jesus told us what the role of the Holy Spirit was would be for God's people. The Holy Spirit would be a comforter. He is the paraclete. It means to come alongside, para, to come alongside. He comes alongside the believer. Jesus told us that the Holy Spirit would convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment, but one of the main purposes of the Holy Spirit is to lift up the name and renown and ministry of Jesus Christ. 
That's what he does. Where Jesus is made authentically famous, the Holy Spirit is at work there. The Holy Spirit is often referred to as the shy member of the Trinity. I heard Bruner in his book on the Holy Spirit say, it's, it's kind of like, like this when he's describing Bruner, when he's teaching his class, he, he gets a whiteboard and he, and he says, what's the role of the Holy Spirit? Let me, let, me, let me display for you. Have I already shared this before? I feel like I have. Anyway, I'll do it again. Um, he gets a whiteboard and he draws a, a stick figure and he puts the name Jesus above the stick figure. And then he goes behind the whiteboard and out of the other end, he points behind the whiteboard to Jesus Christ. And he says, that's the role of the Holy Spirit. He's behind the whiteboard. He's not out in the open and he's always pointing to Jesus Christ to lift up the fame, the renown, the ministry of Jesus Christ. And so, therefore, to reject the glory and worth of Jesus is to reject the main ministry of the Spirit. And the ultimate rejection of the Spirit's work in Christ is unforgivable. Why? Why is that unforgivable? Because as another writes, quote, if one rejects the spirit of God in Jesus, there is no one else in all of the cosmos who can provide salvation. So if you reject the spirit's work in Christ to forgive you of sins, where else are you going to go? There's no other place where you can go to have atonement, to have forgiveness of your sins. All of those lists of sins that come to the surface are unforgivable outside of Jesus. And to, re to, to reject the Spirit is to reject the work of Jesus in forgiving sins. And that ultimate and final rejection is unforgivable. It's blasphemy against the Spirit. Now, it's been said, and every pastor or anybody that has, has been walking with Jesus for some time will eventually get this question from a, a worried, tender soul. I've had it multiple times with tears in her eyes or his eyes. Pastor, I feel that I may have committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And, and it's been said that if you are worried about committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, you probably haven't. You probably haven't. Why? Because those who have blasphemed the Spirit, their hearts are seared shut. Their rebellion against Christ is not causing emotion and regret. They just simply don't care. Jesus just feels like plastic, like another opiate of the people. Another, oh, people need to hope in something. This is a serious warning. Because a heart moving towards blasphemy against the Spirit, in my understanding, it is a slow drift. I don't, I don't know that anybody wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to blaspheme the Holy Spirit today. I think it is a slow drift towards the cares of this world and a slow drift away from Christ. His name just doesn't do it anymore. Give me something else to help me. And so because it is this sort of under the radar creep of your conscience, I want to give you an opportunity right now. If your conscience is awake to this at all, 
is awake to this warning at all and you've been drifting towards indifference toward Jesus, the answer is to let his goodness draw you to repentance. Yes, there is genuine fear in this warning. The thought of unforgiveness is a fearful thought. But we learn from the New Testament that it is actually the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. It is his nature that moves toward us. It is his his disposition to forgive that draws us to repentance. So if that's you this morning, if you're hearing this, if your conscience is sensitive at all to this warning from Christ himself, then repent, run toward the living Christ. With all of your weakness, fall upon his mercy while he still may be found. So there is a general warning against the blasphemy of the Spirit. Finally, in our text, there is a great warning to those who would stand in the way of someone trying to find rest in Jesus. I said this at the beginning, Jesus reserves his harshest criticism and anger for those who would stand in the way of someone trying to get to Jesus. It is the worst kind of sin. Verses 33 to 37, Jesus says, and he's, again, the Pharisees are his audience. This is what he says. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth, or out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees as we close, despite what you look like on the outside, and remember who the Pharisees were. They were the religious elite. You looked at them and you did not think irreligion. You didn't think uncircumcision. You didn't think of lawless living or immorality. You thought the opposite. You thought morality. You thought law-keeping. You thought religious, devout. And what Jesus is saying to them, it doesn't matter what you look like or how long your prayers are. Your words are revealing what is actually in your heart. And what is actually in your heart is venomous and deadly. He calls them a brood of vipers. And in so doing, Jesus is saying the wicked will not escape judgment no matter how you adorn yourself, no matter how many as for me in my house plaques you have laying around, a bad tree will bear bad fruit. It will bear bad fruit eventually. The wicked heart will be revealed and will be judged. So what do we do with this warning? What do we do? First, we must not ignore it. Again, I said sort of tongue-in-cheek, if this is your first Sunday at Roots, welcome. You picked a really good one. They're, in a sense, they're all kind of like this, though, aren't they? Where Christ is, is moving people graciously into a decision about him. And as he says in our text this morning, there is no neutrality with Christ. There's no... There's no 
There's no gray area. He, he says in Revelation that, that I wish you were either hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, it, it makes God nauseous. I, I'll vomit you out of my, my mouth. What's going on there? Is Jesus just being harsh? Is he just trying to kill the joy in the room? Or does he know something about eternity? Does he know something that you and I don't know on the other side of this? And if it's true that he knows something on the other side of this, and there is judgment for those who have not put their faith in Christ, this is a gracious warning. This is merciful for him to be this clear. So what do we do? First, we must not ignore the warning. It is God's divine mercy that all of us have now heard the severe warning of Christ. Next, by faith. By faith. Faith is a biblical word for trust, belief. By faith, you acknowledge the power of the Holy Spirit at work in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Who do other people say that I am? Ah, oh, you're like a Gandhi. You're like whatever. You're a, you're a moral teacher. You're really helpful. But who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You acknowledge by faith that Jesus is not the son of Beelzebul, but in fact is the son of the Father in whom the Father is pleased and in whom the Spirit of God has descended upon him and who is walking out in this life healing. Finally, by faith, you collapse into the arms of the one who binds the strong man for you. You do not try to be the strong man yourself. That would be the worst kind of application of a sermon like this, is try to just muster the strength and go bind the strong man in your life. That is not what Christ has done and that is not the instruction in this text. You don't try to be the strong man. Instead, you, in your weakness, you run to the one who through the cross and his glorious resurrection has defeated Satan, sin, and death. You run to the one who is right now binding the strong man. And you say, I am desperate. I need help. I am not strong on my own. Christ, or Satan has had his way with me. The desires of my flesh have run full course. And every time I try to get a handle on this thing, it's like this wicked vortex of death and I just keep getting worse. I need help. And so you run and you collapse into the arms. That's what faith is. I think that's a good illustration of faith. Collapsing into the arms of God. I need rest. I need you, Jesus. I need forgiveness of sin. And so this is our text this morning. There are a myriad of ways. I pray that the Lord will apply this to your life as you've heard this warning and you've heard now the hope of the gospel. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. Come all the way to Jesus. And again, find rest for your soul. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we come again to yet another consequential moment in the life and ministry of your Son.
And I pray that his words would not fall flat on our ears and on our hearts. With the eyes of faith, with the ears of faith, we'd hear it. Maybe some in here for the first time are, are, are experiencing a, a draw away from the cares of this world and into, into the care and love of their heavenly Father through Christ. Oh, Spirit, would you lead us? Would you lead us to Jesus? Would you give us confidence that we can actually rest in his finished work, that we can actually rest in the love of God? We need your help. Guide us in Christ's good name. Amen.